Okay, this is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. I am your host, B Magic. I got my brother Noise with me. And today, very excited to have this man on the show. This is somebody who we linked up with very early on in our music careers and someone who's been supporting us pretty much since that time, since that first meeting for years and years now. Uh, very cool individual. Uh, glad to have him on the show. St. Lion, Gurdash, and Monger, thanks so much for making the time out to join us today. What's up, guys? It's awesome to be here. And, and likewise, man, we've been all supporting each other since time, man. So <laughs> since the start of it all. Yo, man, we we have slept on your bedroom floor, bro. So, you know, <laughs> this shit runs deep for sure. And I remember I was still, like, trying out for the Ultimate Fighter show when you guys all first found out about me. That was years ago. That was 2010, coming to your guys' house. Yeah, man, it's been, it, yeah. it's it's so dope. Like I uh, I remember when my when my niece finally came to Canada. Like you were at my house when oh, that right. was all going down. So it's like oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny that. how yeah. it's it's funny how like our stories have intertwined and and you know I, I'm I'm happy that I've got to got to know you from uh got to know you from the start of your career up until this point. And uh you know our friendship has grown over the years as well. Yeah. You guys even were soundtracking the videos and the productions that uh, yeah yeah like video creators were making of me at that time. Your it was your guys' music that was soundtracking it. So it was like it all came together. Now we got to get back on that man for the next <laughs> next chapter of the soundtracks. I'm, I've always been down with it. So anything to support each other and you and you know we've always been that way, right? Always always kind of having each other's back. Whether we're all doing our own thing, whether we don't talk for a while, everybody knows. When you have that kind of circle, right? You don't have to be together every single day, but it's like you just take it from where you left it every single time you come together, and that's why it's always been, right? It's like that—it's that unspoken bond, of mutual respect, and like that love's always there, regardless if there's that if there's that daily contact or not. Of course, of course, always is. Today we're gonna get into a little bit of your story. Obviously, we know your story well because. We, you know, we've been there with you. So, uh, but for the listeners, uh, we're going to start where it all started and we're going to get into your parents' migration to Canada or your family's migration to Canada. And uh, so where did your start, well, where are you from and w how was, w when did your family come to Canada? My parents came uh, in 87. Um, uh, we moved up to a small town up in like, it's like seven hours from Williams or sorry, from Vancouver, up north. And up north is just like, I think it's like 15,000 people at that time. And my dad was working in a sawmill, in the same sawmill he works to this moment. He's worked that, oh, one, wow. worked that one job. And my mom worked at Tim Hortons, which is the one job she's had till now. So my parents, wow. 87, 80, actually my dad got to Canada earlier. Uh, my mom came after. So they've still there doing the same thing. And still grinding away and 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 that's where we grew up man it, it was a crazy time to grow up there my cousins had been there before my cousins were much older so it was a it was a much different time when they brought us up there was obviously a lot of racism in that, that city but then when we were coming up it was kind of cooling down there was more multiculturalism in that small town but when they were coming up there was there wasn't so they're always preparing us for this big fight always the big fight wouldn't always come, but there was always those issues and stuff like that. Um, but growing up in a small town is probably one of the best things that I truly believe that that can happen to somebody, especially if somebody realizes that they want more later on in life. Um, 
it teaches you the core simplicity of life. It teaches you the core kind of, like, you know, it, I think small town bonds are a lot different than big city bonds. Um, so you kind of just kind of, you come together more as a community. And then when you want to become something, you always kind of remember what you don't want to end up as and what you can grow out of and come into the big city and become. And I think that's something I've always carried with myself. Nice. With, with small towns, is there kind of like, like a fork in the road in that sense where it's like you're from this small area and you can either kind of get complacent within that or you can like you were saying go the opposite way and dream bigger you kind of notice those two different mindsets and i've seen that and i've seen the people that just kind of uh accepted the situations they were in and they accepted the environment that they came up in and and some people are still living there some people never kind of really went past that um for me i think um, one of the downfalls of being in like a small town is, and I'm sure it's a big city thing too, but I didn't go up in the big city school system or anything that I can't, I graduated in a small town. Then I came up to university was that you basically have that same core of friends from literally kindergarten until the day that you walk the podium and you leave. Right. So what happens is you don't even realize it, but you almost kind of get assigned a role from literally kindergarten. So you know who's the popular kid, you know who's the kid that's the jock, you know who's like the geeky kid, you know who's like the follower and stuff. And the role that I fell into for all those years was I was the follower. I was the kid that literally would follow anybody. Um, I didn't really have a mind of my own and I just wanted to make sure I was always, you don't wanna out speak your group, right? You don't wanna have too many wild ideas cause then that's when you become targeted and stuff like that. So I always just kind of kept everything to myself and I didn't realize how many years of pal passed by like until I walked the grade 12 podium from kindergarten that I realized when I moved up Vancouver that you can actually I could have become so much more during that time but I accepted the role that I was put in so I never ran for president of the school I never ran for valid Victorian because I didn't feel like those were the roles that were meant for me I knew what kid could have those and I would support that kid but I didn't think I could be that kid um and I think that's one of those things that like you know so when I got picked on and stuff in high school I, when I look back on it, I accepted that. I accepted that as part of who I was growing up. It's not like I stopped it. So I can't even hold a victim, like a victim mentality about it. I accepted that. That's why I never fought back. I just knew that I was the shortest kid. I was always the unathletic kid. I was always the kid out of the group that was, that like, you know, didn't hit his growth spurt till like 18. So I was always the shortest damn kid. All the girls were taller than me. So like all that kind of, so I always knew, I always had that mentality that I'm going to be the kid who gets picked on. And um, I accepted that all through. And it wasn't until I moved to Vancouver that I'm like, listen, man, that's either a role that I'm going to carry the rest of my life or this world we break it and we become something better. Not knowing it was going to be MMA, but um, just kind of having a realization that I created this environment around myself. And now it's time to separate from it. If you don't like it, if you like it, then carry on with it. And I wasn't happy with it. Do you do you think like a lot of a lot of like those early year like insecurities? Do you think that comes from like because I know for us growing up the lack of like visual representation of like a cool Indian guy and stuff like that? Do you think a little bit of that kind of plays factor into that? Yeah, I think I do. Like like we never saw anybody of our unless we watched a Bollywood movie, but in mainstream, we never watched any of that. So um, it was even like a mentality that when I first started MMA. Um, to my own parents, to my own friends, they're like, what if you face a Mexican? What if you face a, like an African-American? Like, like, you know, 
they're the superior. Like they're gonna whoop you, dude. Like 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 they because you don't see. We never saw Indian fighters as somebody that could make it, right? We never saw somebody that could stand across from them and actually put up a fight. So in that mentality, you always have that like you can't have that role. Like you're never gonna make it too far with this because we had never seen it done. It, it never had been done. It never. So then I had to come to the realization. It's like what if we were the people that were holding ourselves back. And what if we are just as strong, if not better, but we just never tested ourselves. We just always accepted that. Listen, man, like we're weaker. Like we're not meant to fight. We're not, especially when we come across athletes of different races that are known as superior athletes that we're, we aren't part of that bunch. So I had to get, I had to kind of prove that. And I had no examples on TV to see. I had nobody really to look up to. I know there was no boxer. There was no fighter. There was no sprinter. There was no basketball player uh it really wasn't anything and um i think that was just something we kind of accepted and not being able to see something like that i think we we're always looking at something else to follow um i was doing a little bit of reading a little bit of research on your upbringing uh before we jumped on the call today and one of the things that i i came across is that you know you mentioned that it meant the article mentioned that you're very timid and then you had a stutter is that is are those some of the i guess some of the insecurities that weighed on you when you were younger yeah, um, I had a stutter. I had, um, like, I was basically put in English as a second language, like, classes and stuff. And um, I was always the shortest kid and stuff like that. So those th those things will always kind of follow you. Those things always will be a part of me. Um, the stutter and stuff, it still comes up. Uh, I still forget the role that I'm in now, that how people see me, because you see yourself as what you're going to see yourself as. It's like, you know, you, you're the one who's lived in your body your whole life. You're the one who's gone through the movie of your life. Um, there's people that are going to hop on a train now and think that you're always this strong person. But, um, yeah, it, uh, those were always things that that was part of my, like, you know, people making fun of my stutter, older kids making fun of my stutter, always like, you know, always knowing that it's better to stay quiet, always getting too nervous to voice an idea because I knew they would come after my stutter before I would ever get to say the idea I had. So there was a lot of ideas that I always kind of just put away because I didn't have the strength to even voice them because I couldn't. Um, not knowing English up until about grade one or two because um, my parents were first generation. So um, I was basically learning English and bringing it back home and teaching it to my parents. Um, I was writing my dad's checks and stuff as soon as I knew how to write. I was reading out phone bills and stuff. So I had to grow a lot quicker than my other siblings did. Because I literally had to, by age of eight, I was like, you know, writing checks, like landlord checks and stuff like that, and teaching my dad how to do it. Like, you don't see a lot of eight-year-olds do that kind of stuff. It just, I had to step into that role right away. And um, even bringing, like, Western culture into our household, teaching my parents what Christmas was, like, you know, faking faking the idea of opening up Christmas presents, even though I knew I wouldn't pick it out. Just the idea that I knew there was kids in the house next door that were doing it properly, I had to introduce it to them. Like, listen, mom, you guys do this, you wrap it up like this. So my brother and sister, when they grew up, they could have that element of surprise. I knew Santa was, wasn't real from day one. I knew I was the guy that I was gonna have, like I never had that kind of magic kind of growing up because I was always shown the reality of what's actually going on. Tooth fairies, I used to take the tooth from my sister and them and put money underneath. I never got that. I knew it didn't exist. So I was, I was always living in this very real world from like day one kind of coming up. And uh, I always had to. And then also facing the things that I did outside the house with like, you know, being picked on and just kind of, uh, you know, the stutter and stuff. And my parents didn't know there was any issues like that. 
it's only when I was speaking English that I would have those issues. Um, so it was always these kind of things that I was kind of facing head on since day one. Yeah, so a lot of added responsibility from being the oldest and being first generation, whereas like you were kind of the bridge to try to you know protect the, the, the elder generation, but then also protect your younger siblings at the same time. Yeah, because because like my parents really didn't know how to raise us in the Western culture. Like you know, the, there wasn't a manual for that, so they were always fighting to make sure our Indian values stayed strong at home, right? So they they're, they're like, you don't speak English at home. This is who you are. This is what you are. And then you step out of the house, and you're being taught com- something completely different. And you're just like, which one am I? Which one like which one is it? And like, you know, being a young kid, like you're trying to figure this out because um, you come home and you can't speak English, the same English you're learning outside. And you're trying to, your parents are like, you're this, you're that. And then when you leave, um, you're being taught something completely else. So it's not like till later on that I, you know, you start making sense of it all. Um, you, you mentioned that you got into MMA pretty late. Uh, growing up, what were some of your main interests that, that you were like actively involved in? Um, I was put in soccer, like, you know, like it's, I, I think the reason I was put in soccer is because it's the cheapest sport to put your kids in. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, Cheap, um, cheapest sport, man. Yeah. And I remember I've never had like brand new soccer cleats. My stuff was always secondhand. It was always used shin pads and stuff. You would go to this high school and they'd have like this kind of sale every year that they get rid of. And all the Indian parents would be there. None of the white parents would be there because they <laughs> real stuff. And, um, uh, we get their their kids probably use stuff that we were wearing for the next season. So I always like, you know, you'd see hockey and stuff. I want to do that. But it was too expensive for my parents. There's too much that goes into that equipment and schedules and fees and stuff of that. Soccer was the easiest thing. And they're like, like, you know, they're like, just play that. All the other kids are playing it. So soccer was really it. Um, just whether it was always an interest. It's, yeah, of course it was an interest. But I knew I wasn't like I wasn't. Now looking back at my passions and what I compared to MMA, how passionate I am about that, that I don't think I was ever passionate about it. It was just something that everybody was doing. And at least you got to be with your friends and you, you know, you got to do your thing. And I think that's really what it was. I, I, I just kind of, once again, I did what everybody else was doing. Um, being on the basketball team, I was never good enough to be on the basketball team. So I became the equipment manager. And like literally that would drive the bench and go on the curbs with my friends. And uh, there's like an A team, there's a B team. So all the cut players are on the B team. I obviously was on the B team. So I always had to call up like, you know, different cities and stuff that the A team was going to. So I can get their B players to play us. So not like, you know, where coaches and the school usually sets up that stuff. I was sitting in the office calling up schools, being like, listen, man, we're bringing these B team players. Do you guys have a B team that we can play? And we get to share the same bus and go. So um, I was always trying to be involved with stuff and try to be part of something, but I knew I was never really good enough to be part of anything. And, um, yeah, and so my passion was just kind of just hanging out, and that's why whatever way I could ride the bus, I would do it. Um, so when when does that move from up north to Vancouver happen? And I know you you did the university route the the nine to five gig can you kind of get into that a little part of that of your life um yeah so i moved up to vancouver in 2006 and it was to go to accounting um one thing was i was good at school uh so um basically my town used to call me the donald trump of, of, 
of Williams, like just because of the ideas. At that time, being called out was a huge compliment. I understand. That. <laughs> you don't want that name now, though. <laughs> at that time, like apprentice, <laughs> apprentice and all that was like a hot thing, and like you know, just he was like the mogul and listen this and and um, I even I even applied for Trump University before I applied for anything else, and it was like online school. I'm like, I only want to do this. Um, so yeah, so I moved up to Vancouver and I had uh, uh, scholarships and stuff to go. And once I got here, it was like, okay, now I'm on my own. Now there's nobody here. And even the friends that I had, they were all kind of going to a different school. And everyone just kind of separated. The people that wanted to always stay together, like at the friend circle, they stayed together. To this day, I know some of those guys still hang out together. I completely separated myself. Um, I just wanted to start fresh. And I didn't know what the fresh start was going to be, but I wanted to start fresh. And um, um, so I did the school. I did the accounting, but I realized, I think when I came to Vancouver, I realized the, oyster, the, the treasure chest that is Vancouver or a big city. For us, like when we were watching like NHL games on TV, we would see Rogers Arena. We never thought we could go see Rogers Arena. To us, it was like this crazy monument that we would watch in our small town. Uh, if we saw a BC plays with a football team, we're like, damn. Like when I remember riding up to the to Rogers Arena, BC plays for the first time, I was like, holy crap, like this is where it actually happens. Like there's kids that have lived in the big city that will never have that feeling that like, you know, a small town kid comes up looking at the big building, seeing buildings that aren't just like little small little storefronts, like they're actual big headquarters, like just walking around. I always felt like a tourist in Vancouver. It didn't matter. Even to this day, when I walk around, I look around. I, I love that tourist feeling I get. Like I've, I've never accepted being used to living here. And it, cause it keeps like this motivation inside of me alive. And from there, I just started knowing that there was Hollywood movies being filmed here. There was stuff like all these things that we had only seen on TV and never had been close to us. And from there, that's when I'm like, I don't want to just be an accountant. Like, I feel like I can be this. And I don't know what it was. It's more of a fire or a passion. And I didn't know MMA was going to be it because I'd never been on a street fight. I'd never, um, I'd been picked on, but I was not the guy who fought back. I was a guy who just took the beating because I just thought that's what I was supposed to do. That was my role was just take the beating and get it over with. And that's it. And um, so everybody used to come and try like their wrestling moves on me. So I'd be putting sharpshooters, putting crab. <laughs> I was the guy. I was the guy who they practiced on in the club a lot of basements. And I was the guy. And because I would take it. That was one thing I was known for that. Like you wouldn't hear me crying. I would just take it. And um yeah, so when I came up here, I'm just like, I'm not happy with this. Like, I, I can be something else. If I'm if I'm happy with this, then I, I would feel that. And I noticed even the friends that I was making was literally just any circle that I could attach myself to. So I'd find these guys, and they were just like, you know, um, like, you know, just talking disrespectfully to, like, their girlfriends and stuff. And, like, you know, just kind of doing stupid, useless things. And I'm just like, this isn't me. Like, why am I here? I would always question. I'm like, why, why, why am I standing amongst this circle? And, um, yeah, and just one thing led to another. And then sitting at a bar one day watching UFC, and then I'm like, I want to try this. And then as soon as I said it, the guys that I was with laughed at me. They're just like, dude, like, you're the weakest one out of us. You couldn't win a street fight out of us. Like, you think you're going to go do this? And I think that was kind of like the last thing. That was kind of like the overpour of just my life of being told what I couldn't be and me accepting what it was. I'm like, you know what? We're, we're going to go do this. When I found the gym, this was 2008, 
when MMA was still illegal in Canada, when not even amateur fights were allowed. So it's really hard to find the MMA gyms because they're always hidden away on the outskirts of, 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 of Vancouver. And um, had to print it out on MapQuest. You remember that? On a piece of paper, you got to follow Finally found the gym, and from there it all started. I went in there, got my ass kicked day in and day out. And um, another thing I suffered with was uh, was asthma. So I had the craziest asthma attack. I thought I thought that was it. I thought I was gonna drown, and basically that was the end of my life. And just having that realization that um, this is possibly gonna be the hardest thing I do, but let's see how far I can take it is what kind of kept me with it. Even even to this day, it's still the hardest thing I do every single day. Um, and it's what's made me grow into the person I am and made me a completely different person. Like I always say to people, I'm like, I don't even recognize the guy that I was, uh, from the age of 22 and before I can't even think of what he thought. Like, I can't even think of who he was or why he accepted what he was. If I could go back, I'd slap him. And like, you know, it's just like, like I'd be like, yo, wake up. Like, I wish I was like 17 and I got this realization because at 22 coming from no prior experience from nothing. And basically picking up one of the hardest sports because mixed martial arts is not wrestling, it's not kickboxing, it's not boxing, it's not under, it's a mix of everything. So you got to be at least good at one of those things before you even come into the entire aspect of it. I was starting from absolutely nothing. Um, people are always like, what was your background? I'm like, whatever was going on that day. There was a boxing class at six, there was a jiu-jitsu class at seven. That's my background right there. That's <laughs> the first two things I did. And that, that that's it. And then from there, I just knew that if I could stick with this, something something good could come out of it, but not to think too far ahead, just take it one day at a time. And that one day at a time mentality was what kind of got me to this moment, to today. And um, I spent a whole life of just overthinking processes. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things for me was I had a blueprint for my life. I had a blueprint that like, listen, I'm gonna go to school, I'm gonna get graduate, I'm gonna get married by 24, I'm gonna have kids by 25, 26, and that's it. Like, you know, it's what we're taught chase financial security, get good, and just live peacefully, right? That is just one generation to another. Um, I had to break that whole thing. Just had to break that whole mold knowing this isn't what I'm going to follow. Even the relationship I was in, break that off, break off the friends that weren't going to stick with me. Started understanding what the law of attraction and the secret and all that kind of stuff is what that truly means. Taking my life into my own control, knowing that there was going to be a lot, a lot of lonely days because Nobody was going to understand why I was doing this and why it was happening, including myself on a lot of days. Um, I could lose everything because I was on such a path of security and such a path of basically like, you know, having a comfortable average life that now you're going to go against going broke, basically. And um, I faced those days, too, where like, you know, I had absolutely nothing to my name. And just knowing that that was going to happen during the path, but just taking it one day at a time. Was there ever a period where you know you were working accounting nine to five and then after work training mma and like what was kind of how did you balance those two so so i never worked accounting i got oh, the okay degree. i literally handed in the exam and i remember the students that were there like that were my friends i'm like you're never gonna see me at the school again you're never gonna see me in this career again so i got it but i never worked a day of it i just got it just to say i got it, it was more for the happiness of my own parents i got the right. shit but i never used it um um, for me during that time, I was starting to notice it. I was starting to notice like, um, so when I told my parents, my parents weren't living with me. I told them they thought that I was doing this as a stress relief from school. They're like, okay, that's good. You found something. They didn't understand the obsession and the fire that I began that literally it was overtaking everything. 
Um, I had no money at the time. Um, so what I used to do is I used to get a couple students in my class that used to tell me that they used to watch MMA or like, you know, whether they BS me or not, that they had friends on the UFC and all this crap. I'm like, come to my house. We put on MMA gloves, no, no mouse pieces in between classes. And we still beat the crap out of each other in my basement. Like downstairs, there's still the marks on the walls and stuff. And then like, the school that I was going to is just right up the street here. We'd be sweaty, we'd be gross, and we'd make it for the next class with scratches and stuff. And we keep repeating that. We do that every single day. And I would remember I'd be sitting in stats class and we'd be on our computers and I would be just sitting there studying GSP and now realizing that literally a two hour lecture had gone by with all these notes that I forgot to take. Um, instead, I just like gone tunnel vision into studying George St. Pierre and knowing what he was doing and trying to, trying to understand um, what it was, what I was even watching. And from there, it just became more and more and more. And I just started realizing that my mind was checking out on one thing and this weird fire that I never felt before this obsession about something and the fact that i didn't care about anything else but it i didn't care about hanging out with friends i didn't care about uh being in a relationship i didn't care about being alone i didn't care about spending my days alone i, I really didn't care i was starting to love who i was i was starting to love the content in that i was starting to love just spending time with myself learning about myself i had never known that i'd never been taught that i never understood that uh, we were, were always taught, find a girl, build a relationship, and move on. We never are taught to learn to love ourselves and learn to see what kind of power is within us. And I was starting to see these things. I would meditate. I started meditating. I started just my mind started coming up with crazy visualizations of, like, moments I could live. And I was just like, what the hell is that? I'd be driving and obsessing, and I wouldn't even realize that I was in the car, and then I'd be at the gym, and I'd realize that I'd play, like, this whole movie of – fighting in front of thousands and thousands and now I got to go in and put in the work. So I started seeing the contrast of what manifesting and visualization with the work you got to put in and how that all comes together. And from that, um, just started building over years and years and that, that, that what it became. Yeah. It's like nice. you, you fell in love with yourself and you're kind of making up for the lost time where you didn't necessarily have the best relationship with yourself. Exactly. And I never wanted to go back to that guy. And I think that's another part of my drive is that I never wanted to go back to that. I never wanted to. I, I, I think to this day, that's what drives me is that that I don't want to go back to that weak minded, insecure guy. I'm, I'm still always working on my insecurities. I'm always but I have strength and I know I have it because I've been through so many situations where I've pulled myself through it. I know I, I have a proven record to myself that I can get through things than nothing that i had before you uh you mentioned uh not having like uh a martial arts background right like the, there's a lot of people who come from wrestling and then get into the mmas so i i got the sense that your passion is what drove you because you you cared so much about this new art form that you're learning that you kind of started digging into everything that is mma so who are some of the early, like you mentioned G GSP, but who are some of the early people that you were kind of trying to mimic and styles that you were kind of uh, learning from in the early days? In the early days, George St. Pierre was the main one. I would just take notes on it. Um, I did grow up watching like the UFC and stuff with my dad and my cousins, but I was never interested in it. I wanted to turn it off and watch like, like, Monday Night Raw and watch Shawn Michaels and The Rock and stuff like <laughs> that was my obsession was was WWE that was my obsession 
I found this stuff boring as hell. So like, you know, we, I grew up watching Detour Belfort and stuff like that. So when I got into MMA, I went back to like all those things I used to be forced to watch that now I would gladly watch. And, and that was people like Detour and the style of him. Um, Anderson Silva at that time. Um, there's so many. I just became a sponge for all of them. It was anybody that basically was at the top and me trying to understand their backgrounds and trying to understand what drove them to it. And the reason, well, the reason that um, even kind of pushed me was Rich Franklin. So Rich Franklin was um, that day when I was watching the fights at the bar, the day that I told you that is the day that I was like, listen, I want to go try this. Rich Franklin was fighting Anderson Silva. And it wasn't Anderson Silva, even though he won that day. It was the story that they gave about Rich Franklin right before he walked out. They're like, Rich Franklin is a nine to five high school teacher and in Columbus, Ohio. And now like he's the middleweight champ. I'm like, what the hell? Like, like teachers are doing this? Like, I thought like, you know, watching Karate Kid as a kid, you take him up in the mountains, you train the kid. And like, you know, you, <laughs> you know what your path is as a martial artist from day one. You don't find this path at the age of 22. You already know which way you're going. You messed up. You didn't figure it out. Now you're on the path that you're on. You can't change it. I always believe that. Um, so then I'm like, what the hell? Is that? So that's actually what drove me to kind of give it a chance. And then on that card was a guy from Surrey where is the gym that I ended up at with Revolution. He was on the undercard. His name was Caleb. So I'm like, what the hell? There's a guy from Surrey on this card. And so you're saying there's gyms here? And that's what made me be part of the team that I was, which is Revolution Fight Team, was a guy that happened to be on that card. And then Rich Franklin was there. And now Rich Franklin is the CEO of, uh, of One Championship, where I fight now. And so it's kind of like at the crazy circle. I still haven't sat down and met him yet, but that's the guy. But he knows my story, and it's always like, you know, our schedule is always kind of insane. But it's a crazy circle that comes around. But it was him uh, hearing his story that he was this high school teacher that it kind of drove me to go down that route. Do you remember your your first fight? Kind of what was your what was going through your head as you were, you know, you're entering the cage to have this first match and like all that training and what went into that first fight and did it go the way you wanted it to go? So there's a couple there's a couple first fights. Um, uh, one is there's something called pancreation tournaments that used to happen. I don't know if they still happen or not, but since MMA wasn't legal here, they call them pancreation tournaments. So pancreation tournaments are basically open mat. And my fight's still on YouTube. It's, it's still there. It's weird to go watch it because I'm fighting in basketball shorts. And like, <laughs> it's like weird. <laughs> and like, basically it was at a college and you sign up, you go pay 65 bucks. So you got to pay. You're not getting paid for this. Um, you're paying. And um, basically you're fighting four random guys in one day and it's three minute rounds. And basically that was my first fight I'd ever been in in my life. Um, my mom came in, my sister came, my sister made signs and stuff like that. And you can hear the commentary because the video is on YouTube. You can hear the commentary of them just scared for their lives. Um, <laughs> that first fight, my tooth went through my lip and, um, but I won it. I won that, I won that tournament. I lost the last fight, but then the actual real fight was after I'd done a couple of those tournaments, my coach called me. I still remember exactly where it was. I was sitting in a subway parking lot. And I just came back from training and he calls me. He's like, you're ready to step up into going into a real ring. So that's what I consider a real fight. Um, I'm like, holy shit. Like, you always kind of pump yourself up that you're going to do it. But when you get called out on it, you're like, damn, we're actually going to do it. Like, we're actually going to get into a cage or a ring now. Like, this, like, like, this shit's for real now. And so 
he's like, there's a fight on one week notice. There's a kid you're going to fight who's from the town that you're going to fight in. He's going to be the hometown guy, and this and this and this. And um, I'm just like, I took a minute. I'm like, let's do it. I turned on the phone. I turned down the phone. I just screamed in the car. I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is, this shit's for real now. And so I had about a week and a half, two weeks to train for that fight. And I remember just being so shit scared on the day of the fight. I was so scared that I gave myself a fever. Like, I, my opponent got changed three times, I remember. We, we had to cross the border to go fight in Washington because MMA was illegal here. So I had to fight on, like, these, these secluded towns, like these, like these Indian reservations and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I was just so scared. And I remember being in the back warming up. I'm like, if I win this, I'm going to the UFC. Like, like you know, like that's what I believed. If I win one little fight, like I've made it, <laughs> right? So I remember being bad. And then my music comes on, and I walked out to what was my very first song I ever watched? Oh yeah, um, R. Kelly, Go Get Up, Go Get Up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't age well, but you know, good choice for the times. During the time, yeah, it was him. And- uh that song i forgot i haven't even heard that song in years but i remember that, that. i think it was young jeezy no yeah yeah, yeah that's uh... it. i walked into that and i remember being, i remember just being tunnel vision like just being scared like just i was so freaked out and um we got fight of the night that night and i won that fight and just there was a point where i was in like a full kimura and my arm was literally about to be like ripped out like most people would attack and what i realized was like the crowd was pretty racist and they were just like rip his brown arm off send him back to where he came from and that's what made me not tap and the thing is i didn't have enough training yet to know all the submission escapes and stuff i was caught in the kimura facing my corner and they were practicing on each other teaching me the defense while this guy has me in the kimura and i'm wow out of it so like you know to have that kind of mindset to be in this crowd yelling and screaming looking at your corner and you're learning something while your shoulder rotator cuff is being torn out. And I got out of that and I beat the crap out of the guy and I, and I won that fight. And there's a lot of respect that I earned in that town after that. And I remember people were coming up to me and they kept wanting me to come back to the point where by the fourth fight, it was like I was the hometown guy. And it was just like, it was the first time I learned how to gain respect with action. I, I, I think because I had the whole crowd against me. I didn't have any of my people there. Nobody. My family didn't even know I was fighting at this point. Um, and it was just me and my two coaches and um that was it and from that it was just like it was one of the scariest things i've done i'm like it'll probably get easier right i'm like you know what like you know first time it'll get easier do it it's only gone worse and you can ask any pro fighter it only gets worse you think that you get used to the whole idea and the stomach like in your butterflies and the nervousness and all that it only gets worse because you have more experience to base it off of stuff that can come at you and what you can face in there when you're naive and you're, you don't have anything to back it off it's actually easier to go into something than when you're like damn dude like i remember i went through that hopefully that doesn't happen hopefully my nose doesn't break in half like because you've been through certain things so the more experience you get the more you think about the shit that can go possibly wrong and the more you mess with your head so the more i go the worse it actually gets and like somebody like donald Cerrone talks about that very well that it doesn't matter how many fights you have, it never gets easier. It never gets easier. 
Yeah, I, I was actually gonna ask that question. I'm like, how do you how do you like deal with that fear? And like, does does it ever go away? But you 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 answered it there. Like, I feel like maybe you just learn to harbor it and use use that fear. Maybe that's what you have to do. You have to do that somehow. Um, so John Jones said it one time. He's like, it's okay to have butterflies as long as you can make the butterflies go in formation. So it's like you got you take that nervous and you take that energy and you use it in certain ways. So. For me, it's gone to a point, I don't feel good if I'm not feeling that anxiety and that nervousness. Now, if I feel too relaxed, I get scared. I'm like, why? Like, don't get too comfortable. Shit. Like, shit can go wrong real quick, so don't get too complacent. Your training was good. Everything was good. It's good to have confidence. But I remember that guy trained his ass off, too. And especially at the stage I'm at, like, this is the biggest platform you could be on one championship. Like, these guys are absolute killers. Um, yeah. People don't do it on the side. This is what they do. Um, so just those kind of things. And just like, um, I started working with a sports psychologist a lot. So that, that, that was a huge thing. Just like, you know, knowing how to use your energy, knowing how to use it. Cause you realize more and more and more how mental the sport is more than physical and your mentality towards it will take you a lot further than, uh, the, the physicalness of it. So you got to know how to work your mind, how to face things. And, and the thing is, you're not just facing it, um, in the fight you're facing it day-to-day in training so like if you're comfortable every single day then you need to switch gyms you need to go somewhere where there's more competition like i went up to las vegas now and now i train up there and every day when they're sparring i have the same nervous feeling that i get on fight day and you do that for seven eight weeks straight when you're feeling that same anxiety or stomach because the guys that i'm sparring are some of the best guys in the ufc and one championship and bellator like those are the guys that are in vegas and you don't know who you're going to get that day and who's going to catch you with what and stuff like that every guy's training for their own belt their own championship their own fight their own money so nobody uh everyone's coming to get their own and it's just a killers in there so you you have to learn to face that every single day while you're training with absolute killers like that day in and day out two three times a day you you had uh you mentioned gsp before as well right and and you eventually get the opportunity to go train at tristar what was that that whole experience like? That was insane. Um, all I had was posters of GSP on my walls and stuff like that. And I remember when uh, UFC first came to Canada, they went to Montreal for GSP versus Matt Serra. And I remember just like that time I was what? I was a year and a half into MMA. Um, and just seeing how he could bring the people together. Like I was just like, I want to do this. I want to do this for my people. And then from there, it's like, how do I make it to a gym like this? Like, how do I go out there like this? And then what happened was, um, how I got out there was, there was, they had seen some of my fights on YouTube and I messaged Faraz and Faraz was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to look over this stuff, come out here. I'm like, what? You're seriously like inviting me to the gym? And then what happened was there used to have the dorms next door. And the dorms were supposed to be actually a set for a reality show for fighters that live together and train at TriStar. So I was I was the first of five people that went over there. And when we went over there, the show kind of got scrapped, but the business idea of keeping the dorms open for fighters to come from all over the world to live there and train next door where we stayed. So then I went back, um, I packed up my stuff. And then I remember the first time when GSP walked in, um, I forgot how to fight. Like, I, I was like... <laughs> It wasn't a commercial no more. It wasn't a guy on a screen no more. He was right there. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to shake his hand. It, it was, I get very few moments where I'm completely speechless or like I get very starstruck. 
And I think that was one of the last, the few last ones that I had. Um, after I met him, I was just like, shit. Like, just, just knowing his story coming up from a small town, being bullied, being picked on. He found karate, but he still came up in a similar way that, that I kind of came up. Um, but just knowing that, like, proving it to myself that I can make it to these places, that I can make it into these gyms, that I can make it into the, the mecca of Canadian MMA at that time, that I can make it over here and I can be amongst this, that literally I, I visualized this, I manifested this, I worked my ass off for it, and I made it here on my own own way and it was just kind of like the first time it proved to me that i belonged around these guys i belonged and then you had to prove yourself in that gym that gym gets guys that come in and leave out the door the next day um they weed people out pretty damn quick but my vision was to represent my people and that's what kept me in there was working my ass off and he knew what i represented and, and when i spoke to him he always gave me good words and george is one of those guys that like i've i've met a lot of my idols and they always say sometimes it's bad to meet your idols because they usually end up disappointing you. He is one of the guys that has never disappointed me. Um, I remember going out with him one day. We uh, we went to uh, the club in downtown. Like you know, I'm like shit. I'm clubbing with GSV now. <laughs> 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 so I go with him, and um, you guys living in the east, Montreal winters are no joke, right? Us coming, us coming from the west, we can use the same spring summertime jacket in the winter here. We don't have to, like, you, we don't need a Canada Goose jacket. We don't need a separate jacket to handle the, uh, the winters here. But in Montreal and Toronto and stuff, hey, like, you do. Don't, don't start bragging about that West Coast uh, weather <laughs> right now, right? <laughs> so then I go with them, and I'm just, like, I'm wearing, like, this skinny little jacket. And I'm, we walk about six blocks from his car to the club that we're going to. And he just sees me shivering, and I'm just trying to hide it and stuff. And he's like, bro, are you cold? I'm like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. And he sees it. This guy sprints back to his car when it's like minus 37 grabs a jacket brings it back he's like listen put this on you're gonna keep this it's, it's just like a little thing if you think about it but it's something like a guy of his status could do that it goes to show how deep his like humbleness and how far his martial art roots are staying true like it's easy to stay true in front of the cameras but there was no damn cameras around that was just me and him he could have not given me anything and yeah he's like you keep this jacket this is the only way you're gonna be here and that's like what six seven hundred dollar jacket and he just gave it right off his back and just ran back. And he's like, and then even like, you know, recovery days, going to the spa and stuff. He knew like how much fighters struggle compared to what he was making. And he, he would take us. He'd make sure everybody's recovering, take us to the spas and stuff like that. And it was just like that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, I hope I can get to that kind of status to get to that kind of place where I can take care of people around me like that. And it always kind of inspired me. I'm like, this guy really actually no different. But I also told myself that when I get to that point, to always remember what he was too, to be that humble, to be that way, to always stay true to what it is, because that's so important. There's a lot of fighters that fall off that way again. There's a lot of people that gain celebrity status or anything, and they fall off that way. And so he was an amazing reminder that um, he is as real as he is on TV and what he's known for. That's who he is in person too. That's dope. Can Can you talk a little bit about your your first fight in India and what that experience was like? Yeah, that's when I came in and saw you guys right after. <laughs> <That> yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah, so that was 2012. Um, yeah, that was 2012. And India was finally kind of starting to accept MMA. Uh, they knew that that wrestling, like pro wrestling and stuff, um, it wasn't as, it was kind of dying away, but it wasn't. But they knew that MMA was blowing up. And Bobby Lashley at that time was an MMA. 
And Bobby Lashley was also a, a, a pro wrestler too. And he came into MMA. So they decided to do a show at, um, decided to do a show at Indar Gandhi Stadium, which is about 18,000 people. Well, yeah, about 18,000 people. And I was only 2-0 and as a pro at that time. So I'm like, crap, I want to get on this. Like I heard it. I heard about all the Bollywood celebrities. I heard how big this thing was going to be. They were going to sell it out. I'm like, this is what it is. And I remember being at the club or something like that. I remember being on like a dance floor, like, you know, me doing my ratchet shit I used to on the weekends. (laughs) 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 Me getting a tweet going, St. Lion, we'll see you in, um, we'll see you in Delhi on May, I think it was like May 8 or something like that, 2012. I'm like, holy crap, I'm on the card. I'm like on the dance floor reading this. And the DJ that was DJing also follows me on Twitter. And he saw it and he gives a shout out on the mic. He's like, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, it was, a, it was just such a crazy moment because it was going to be like my first world travel platform fight. And, um, and just when I went over there, it was just insane, man. It was like just media, paparazzi, just how big it was. We were on the front of every newspaper. There was Times of India, Hindustan Times, all that stuff. And it was just so much to take in in my second pro fight facing a guy from china so they ran the whole political angle on it china and india had a lot of tensions going on at that time so they ran that whole angle on it so you're putting all this pressure on this kid that literally was fighting on just these local shows of 100 people and now you're putting him in front of the world and it's gonna be streamed to the world and that was probably the first time i had to like uh, really kind of just focus in on myself and keep my head together there was photo shoots there was media shoots there was all this kind of stuff and um, even the weigh-ins had like 5,000 people in a mall with like five floors and stuff like that. And just, I remember when, um, before the fight, before the fans were allowed in, I walked out to like the arena and just walk around, just get a feel of it. I'm like, looked around and I was just like, it was kind of like when Maximus Aurelius walked into the empty Coliseum. He just looked around, he's like, damn, like this is, this is it. Uh, I, had that, I had that feeling. And I remember walking on just like, and my teammate, my corner, somebody caught that moment. I still have it. It was, it's on my phone. And just me just looking around like, holy crap. And then I guess they left the gates open. And the one thing that they didn't do for this fight was they didn't have assigned seating. So they literally, whoever got in, got to pick whatever seat they want. But the floor was all going to be VIP, like, like, like actors and actresses, but the upper dog. So literally I'm standing there and they let in and you just see this like sea of people come through the tunnels from all around, just running to seats just yelling. I'm just like, and it just filled up within like five minutes. It's like 18,000 seats in five minutes. And I'm just watching this happen. Just like, I'm like, these are the people I'm going to be coming out in front of. Like, I can't even see the top. And um, just the air was so dry in there and just like all these things. And going to that fight, I went tunnel vision and I just went tunnel vision and just was like, I'm either going to die in here. I'm going to win. And that's it. I remember winning and just like getting up on that cage and just not realizing the impact of that fight and what I'd done and what had been written, that we were the first um, official event in, in, in Indian MMA. And then it was nuts, man. And then I've gone back four times now and put on the four biggest fights that have happened on that soil. And I've been part of all of them. And now with one championship, I'm hoping to take them over there. and That would be the biggest of all of them. Uh, before we get into to one championship and all that, um, can you tell us a little bit about winning a, a title for the very first time and, you know, having your parents there with you in the cage and you having an India, Canada flag, all that, like, you know, just for 
for us being here and rooting for you. I remember the goosebumps that we got when that shit happened. So like you living it, what was that like? Um, that because at that time I had to always fight a weight class up because they didn't have my weight class at that time. So I fight at 135, 145. So I was always small. I always came into these fights at like always smaller than the guy. So I already knew I was at a disadvantage, but this was going to be the first time that my parents were truly in the crowd and my parents were going to be there. And, um, once, and I was just like, just, I'd never been part of, uh, like odds. Like, like, you know, you could bet on that fight. That was the first time people were able to bet like on, <laughs> on that fight. I was like, I remember I like, uh, I like, uh, so I knew, so there was like these strip club owners and stuff and they're like, dude, so they're like, dude, we put like 10 G's on you. And just okay. hearing that. Like, oh, wow. I <laughs> and I'm just like, and like the strippers telling me that, listen, we put like our money on you. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, and then I was the underdog on it. And I'm just like, whoa, like people can bet on this. So just that pressure alone. And then just the whole idea that I could become the first champ of that organization, first of all. And I could become one of the first champs of, of Indian descent to hold the belt. Um, I just, I remember round four. He hit me with such a hard punch of round three that I forgot round one and two. And when round four came along, I'm sitting there talking to my corner. I'm like, man, I don't think I can make it a five. They're like, dude, you're already in round four. I'm like, what? I thought we were in round two. Like, just like these little moments and stuff like that going into it. And then I went into autopilot. Um, I just put the guy away and just like went into this autopilot. And just knowing that that flag was going to be around me and that belt was going to happen and like everything, it was going to become something so much bigger. And just knowing knowing that my parents were in the crowd and how proud they would be. Cause up until that point, I don't know if there was really a moment where my dad was really that proud. Like, you know, there was, I don't know if I'd ever given him that moment. And I really wanted to give that to my parents. I was like, listen, man, like this is what it can become. The second time was the India fight. Uh, so this was before the India fight. So the second time was the India fight where I was able to, cause I had always told my dad that, listen, I will go into your home country and let them know who we are. And that's what I did in that India fight. But the first step was getting that belt and just having my parents there and just, yeah, just having that belt and the celebrations and just uh, knowing that, proving to people that Indian fighters can be just as good as anybody else. How we can be the top. Like, it's not just, we're not just part of the roster. We're not just there to fill up some sort of minority gap that you need to gain audiences. We can be that. And um, that was the first time it proved to me. And just knowing that I can put in this, all this work and it will come together. There will be ups and downs, but it will come together. It was more proving to myself and just visualizing. The thing is, like, when you're manifesting that, when you're visualizing, like, every day I visualize that belt, whether I was in the shower and training or whatever, I always picture that belt, and it would bring me to tears. But I remember when the belt was being put on me, it never felt as good as me when I visualized it because I had been through it so many times to the point of such detail that I had almost lived the moment too many times beforehand that when it happened, I was like, this is it. Like, <laughs> I was like so it never actually hit me um, for a while. I don't know if it ever hit me because I just pictured it so well every single day. I felt it every single day that when it actually happened in reality, um, it just didn't feel as good. And, and I've heard other fighters and champs say that, that the victory, the actual victory never feels as good as how you pictured it or manifested it. And because you, it, yeah, it just never always feels that way because you just visualize it so many times and you feel all these emotions day in and day out. That's what keeps you going through all the things you go through, through all the injuries, through everything. 
And then, um, yeah, it's usually short-lived when it actually happens. Can you talk a little bit about uh, One Championship? Like, how did you get connected with them? And I guess, how, is, how has your experience been working with them as an organization? Um, so with One Championship, it was, I had gone to India and done um, a reality show out there on MTV India. And it was basically like the Ultimate Fighter. They brought in fighters from all over. It wasn't just Indian fighters. It was fighters from like, you know, Team Alpha Male in California, to guys from Australia. And they set it up in like teams. So I was Team UP. My mom was born in UP, so I represented UP. And my grandma had just passed away. So I wanted to represent her by representing UP. And, um, and so I won that entire show. We had to do four fights, four weeks. It was one of the craziest, craziest things I've ever been part of. The one of the most chaotic um craziest things i've ever been part of not just what was going on outside of um like you know just mumbai in general but then also having a cut weight fight cut weight fight cut weight fight opponent changes it, it was just craziness after i won that that's when one championship approached me like listen man we've seen you um uh and they had been they had offered me a contract a couple of times i just kind of was like i don't know if one championship is a place i want to go it was just the timing was so perfect with what they were doing and me just seeing the direction of where MMA was going. So for the first seven years of my life or first seven years of my MMA career, the UFC is it. You know, the UFC is if you're a hockey player, you're making it to the NHL. If you're a basketball player, you're making it to the NBA. If you're the best uh, MMA fighter, you're going to the UFC. But the landscape has changed so much since that time where you got organizations like One Championship coming up that not only pay better, that more viewers, um, you kind of have to step out of the whole North America isn't everything kind of mindset that there's actually viewers like, you know, my last fight had 7 million people watching the one before that was 7 million, like, you know, and that's on an average. Um, so then from there, from there, like, you know, people that I looked up to people that had watched on the UFC were leaving from the UFC to going over the one championship, like, you know, Eddie Alvarez, Vitor Belfort, and Demetri Johnson, Mighty Mouse was actually the person that I last spoken to before I signed the one championship contract. He was the longest reigning UFC champ. Still to this day, they say like, you know, he is the pound for pound greatest fighter um, that's ever been in the cage. And he was somebody that I was training with out in Washington. I was trying to get an idea of like um, what the situation is in the UFC and stuff like that. And he's just like, dude, you gotta, it's not what it is. It's you gotta go get what you can get. And that's when one championship came along and I'm like, I knew what the fighters in the UFC were were getting because I trained with a lot of them. And when they presented me the contract, I'm like, seriously, this is what you guys are giving me? And it just beat everything. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm at a point where I'm married now. I'm a bit older. Um, sometimes you got to change the goals and you got to see the blessing in disguise and go with it. And it's probably the greatest thing. Uh, it's the greatest thing that's happened. I didn't realize how truly one, how big one championship was till I went to Asia. Um, I had no idea. I had heard about it, but I didn't know until my first fight and um, just seeing the fans and everything and just like 16, 17,000 person arenas walking out, like I'm walking out into Rogers Arena, just looking around. I'm like, holy crap, like this is going to be a consistent thing. And just the production, if you guys seen the production, the entrances are like, WrestleMania entrances. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say like you, you end up getting to meet another one of your heroes, Vitor Belfort. Like uh, I, I remember watching that whole thing, and I was like, you know, you guys are two dudes who have very powerful stories, and you know, like share that experience a little bit. 
yeah, yeah. So like that. So after I won my one championship debut, uh, one championship brought us all to Japan, which was going to be one of their biggest shows. And they flew me and my wife out. They flew Vitor out, and they all put. I'm like, I remember seeing Vitor for the first time, uh, literally sitting one row ahead. And like, I've tried to explain to my wife how much Vitor has played a role in my life up until that point. Actually, the day that me and my wife met, Vitor was fighting on TV. It was a day that um, the reason that me and my wife even started talking is because the Montreal Habs were playing and. They were playing on every screen there was in the bar, and only one TV was playing the UFC, and I was only there to watch Vitor's fight. And her view was directly of the fights, and she wanted the 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 bartender to change the channel. And I'm like, no, you're not changing. I'm here to watch that guy. She's like, what? You're here to watch two guys humping each other? I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to teach this girl. And then from there, that was Vitor's fight. From there, we talked, and look where we are now. So Vitor is playing a lot of crucial roles in my life where – now, fast forward to that moment. So, um, Vitor is playing a role in my life because I lost my cousin back in grade 10 I was in. I was in grade 10. My, um, my cousin committed suicide. And um, what it was was, and the way that Vitor connects to this whole story was the only reason I used to watch the UFC, which was Vitor's fight, was just to hang around him. He was older. He was like the true, like, you know, all these guys watched was pumping iron like he was jacked like and I was like this timid small guy that just wanted to be like him and just wanted to hang around him and then we would always watch Vitor's fights and I used to always ask him when I was a kid I was like how do I look like that guy he's like you drink one glass of milk every day and you do 20 push-ups I did that every single day thinking I could look like that and (laughs) because I didn't know what a Brazilian was at that time I thought Vitor was an Indian guy right because I didn't like at that time I didn't know what Brazilians were or or what they were right so (laughs) I thought he was an Indian guy because he looked like all my cousins. My cousins looked like Vitor, and I was like, that's one of our guys. So then um, when he committed suicide, I just went away from ever wanting to see Vitor's face again um, because it would always remind me of my cousin. It was always – I just kind of completely went away from it, and um, and I never watched MMA after that. I stayed away from it because it would always remind me of my cousin, and it wasn't, like I said, up until age of 22 that stuff started coming back full circle. And um, then all of a sudden, Vitor came back to the UFC after years. Um, and he was fighting Anderson Silva. And I just won the belt the week before. So the belt that we were just talking about, I just won the week before. And we were having my after party and Vitor happened to be fighting. And I was just like, all these mixed emotions were coming back together. And then he's always held a special place in my heart from like what, how my childhood is connected to him. And basically, when he signed to one championship, I'm like, holy crap, this guy's in one championship. And then we happened to be in Japan together. And we were going to go to Thailand and stay together for a week. Because um, we were part of some one championship retreat where they brought like 50 of their like big stars. And me being one of them. And then Vitor being one of them. And I was sitting in um, the Japan hotel, uh, uh, the bre- breakfast table. And all the tables were taken. Every spot, the, the thing was packed. And there's only two spots next to me and my wife. And Vitor comes, he's like, you guys in here? I'm like, I literally froze. Like, like I said, I, I don't have a lot of starstruck moments. GSP was one of them. And Vitor was, was the other one. And my wife looks at me and she has never seen me like this. Like she's never seen me freeze, like be like become like this kid. Because I forgot how old I was in that moment. I remember myself as the 10-year-old again. I thought I was 10 years old. Like I forgot you're part of one championship. You are one of the fighters. And he didn't know who I was at the time. And um, 
I'm just, and my wife's just like kicking me under the table. She's like, tell him, like, tell him your story. Like, tell him how you, how you, like, you know, what he means to you and stuff. I'm like, no, no, I can't, I can't. Literally 45 minutes. So 45 minutes sitting there. He's finishing up his breakfast. He's about to get up and leave. I'm like, man, you got to get some balls and you got to talk to this guy. So my wife walks away. My wife's like, I know you're being shy because I'm around. So she walks away. And he's getting up on my detour. And I'm like, I need to tell you something. And dude, I'm like shaking the video, like the raw videos there. Even Vitor posted it on his Instagram. He, he posted the whole thing on his Instagram because he knew that a moment was happening. Like it was weird. Like, like I said a few sentences. He's like, stop. I'm like, oh shit. He tells his wife, he's like, record this. Like she, he like knew that something needed to be caught in that moment. I'm like, shit, I'm being filmed. Plus I'm going to tell this guy this story. Uh no idea what direction i'm taking this right and we're just talking and i'm just like listen man like like um i had lost my cousin and and you were somebody that i watched my whole life and i couldn't couldn't watch you but what gave me the strength to not build hate inside of me so if you know vitor's story he lost his younger sister uh she was kidnapped and they never found her but there's like um uh, literally people in the like you know like the mob or whoever they are they came out with like a eight track like cassette and they on each track they described what they did to his sister and like you know how they raped her and like you know it's, it's a very dark dark thing and you know like think about it like you're carrying that kind of hate in your heart but yet this guy i'd come across a video of his that was called i am second on youtube and on i am second he talks about i found god how he's able to let go of the pain how he's able to let go of this and I always had this hate in my own heart about my cousin and like why he left and why, like, what did people do to make him, to drive him to that point? What did he go through? So I was always carrying this. And I came across that video. I'm like, dude, I used to watch that thing. Like it was like a prayer when it came out. And he's like, wow, you actually watched that video? I'm like, that video saved me. I'm like, that video saved me from being an absolute hater for the rest of my life instead of letting it go and becoming something else. And, um, I'm like, I've always wanted to just thank you. I wanted to thank you for like literally saving my life. Like I wasn't in danger, but I was in danger of throwing my whole life away. Like, you know, just becoming an insecure hater for the rest of my life, just carrying around this guilt. And the fact that you went through that with your sister and yet you're coming out on the other end of this, like who you are. And um, from there, we just had a deep talk and he was just like, you have to, if there's anything I've learned, you have to use your pain as, as fuel to uh, help others. So one thing that I always dealt with uh, my whole life was depression and anxiety. And I never spoke about it for a long, long time. Up until just last year, literally after that conversation, I started talking about it more. Um, and I was just like, dude, I can't hide this. Like, I can't hide this from people that are also going through it. And he's like, you need to talk about it. So me and him, we went to Thailand and we recorded that video, the one where, and I was so nervous recording about the whole message of what you can do, of how you can use pain. And we were in that resort and I was just like, I'm living in a damn fairy tale. Like that I visual, I remember even on the flight to Japan, I'm like, what if that moment happened? What if I meet Vitor? What would I react? And my wife's like, it's not like, you know, like if it happens, it happens, right? But I pictured it for years of the day I would meet Vitor and be able to tell him this. Like years I pictured this. And the fact that it happened, I was just like, I couldn't believe it, man. And and we've had that special bond. Like, you know, he sends me a message before all my flights. And just to think of, you know, messages me and just, yeah. uh, yeah, like this guy is like the Mike Tyson of MMA. He four decades of fighting since the age of 18 to, to this day, he's still a fighter since the age of 18. Um, and then there's Mike Tyson along the same lines. And now, like, you know, I don't know if you guys watch pro wrestling, like, you know, those two take, uh, they teamed up. 
on aid that help you the oh, other. Oh yeah, I see. I yeah, see yeah. With, <laughs> and, like, going down with Jericho. Jericho, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, these two growing up, and now look, they're still like at it. They're these fit ass individuals that are still at it, and just like it's crazy, man. It's just like what you kind of. Sometimes things that you manifest take a lot longer to come together, but it's crazy when it comes together. And I truly met, I truly thought about that for years and years. One day I'd be able to go up to this guy and tell him the story. And I remember it's, yeah, it's, it's a crazy video to watch even the raw footage of it, of it going down and me just being like this nervous ass kid <laughs> and uh, just being able to tell him it. And it was just, it was powerful. It was a very powerful moment. No, yeah, it was it was really nice to see you have that moment, especially because I, I I knew how much Vitor meant to you as a person, and uh, it, it's funny because it's like I I lived in Brazil for three months, right? And I've always said this to people here who who ask me like, how was Brazil like, right? And I was in a small town called Castanhal, which is not like a major city, but it's it's the the similarities that I saw in Brazilian culture and Punjabi culture is so like it's so similar it's so crazy so it's like i feel like maybe that's why you guys have a good like friendship and and like that mentorship is because you guys kind of are cut from that same cloth and same values even my main mentor uh Ibiano fernandez who has been the longest reigning one championship champ of the one way class above me he's the one who kind of guided me since day one who taught me the mind how to be spiritually strong and he has a crazy story himself, him being from the jungles of, of Brazil, uh, being homeless, like literally him, Jose Aldo and Jacare were part of like the same like kind of orphanage, kind of same area. And they were all started training like on just leaves. And now they are three of the most accomplished fighters in the world. And so it's a testament to show you, you can come from any kind of environment, but even me and him, like you can see that, yeah, the two cultures kind of clash. Like, you know, he's been, I've known him since 2007 and like we've we're the closest and it's just you you do see that there isn't much difference and stuff he's come to my house for dinners and stuff and it's the brazilian culture and the union go it comes together man it's cool um you've 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 been but you've been you've been really blessed to have uh, a very successful ufc career so so far right um recently you had a very tough loss in your journey and you've been very open about it which i admire is you know like you said in, in your little uh in your little captions and stuff like that like yo you got to you got to be humble in, in in winning and in defeat right so what like what has this new experience kind of taught you and uh, and how do you kind of rebound from that because i feel it's it's important to highlight the bumps in the road because you know there are going to be kids who are listening to this who want to get into MMA and who might even be inspired by you but you have to show them the reality of what happens along this journey and and I'm proud of you for for sharing that with us so can you kind of tell us how your journey has been and kind of growing in that sense it's like it hurts. Of course it does. It, 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 it's heartbreaking. It's like, you know, it's like breaking up a relationship that you thought you put in all your time and work and you thought would come together, but it just falls apart. But I know that if you look at my record, I've done that to 15 other fighters and I put them in that same situation. There's nothing that I'm above that I shouldn't feel that either. And Kobe Bryant said it well. He's like, when you lose, you realize that you have to come to terms that it's not about you. Like, it's not like, it's not always going to be about you. It's not going to be 
you you can't cry about it like you know you're gonna have your days you're gonna not have your days things are gonna go wrong things aren't gonna go right you can do everything right and things can fall apart in in the spotlight for me the biggest thing has always been never have regret of what more you could have done before you got in there and that i only learned through experience i did everything i could i sacrificed everything i possibly could um i spent time away from my family i said like you know i did everything i didn't cut any corners and i've been in the situation where I've had regrets of I could have done more. And when you've done all you can do, um, you shouldn't have any regrets of what, like obviously I want to win, but I also have to realize that I lost to a top five guy in the world. People didn't think that I could fight a top five guy in my city. So I'm, I lost to the best. To me, that's still not excuse, but it lets me know exactly where I'm at. And for me to break into the top five of the world and to be that guy, I just, you can't make any mistakes at this level. At one time, you can't make any mistakes. Like, it's not, they capitalize on it. And uh, it's also, there, there's a process, and George St. Pierre actually taught me this, was there's a process. There's a process when you lose where you go through regret, you go through anger, you play a million what I should have, I should have zagged when I zagged, I should, like, you know, there's like, should have done this way, should have defended, and you go through all of that. Right. You wake up with the emptiness. You wake up with the depression. You wake up not wanting to train for a while because you just feel it's useless now because you're like, look, like, you know, I, I don't want to go through all that again to come up with that kind of result. But there's also your choice of how long you want to let that process last. You can let that shit last for a year. You can let it last for two years. You can let it last a weekend. Or you can let it last a day. I was literally trying to make it last by the time I got to the back to the back change room when I had to answer to like. To Misha Tate doing a post fight. I was trying to just handle it. I'm like, I have to show that I can handle this. Like, you have to be able to handle it. Like, Dominic Cruz is somebody that I saw in a post fight, and he's just like, this wasn't my day. Like, you know, it's not that I'm not good enough. It's not that um, that it's 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 a learning experience that you're not invincible. That hunger should build inside you even more, and it's almost kind of a wake up call. Like, you're not anything better than anybody, and you got it get out there and get a more and stuff like that. It's not that I was a lesser fighter. It was just the moment. It was truly just the moment that's what it is. And you have to go through these things. Like these, these are the moments that keep you humble and mixed martial arts will keep your ass humble as much as they can. And if you're like on the amateur circuit and you're winning all the time, that's where kind of like the bubble kind of creates. But when you're at the high level, you will always stay humble. Some of the most humble guys you meet are because you know how you're the only one in there and how you're one punch away, one kick away from it all changing. And, um, and just, yeah, it's something even to this moment that I deal with. Like every day when I wake up, I think about that fight because that was my last fight. Um, I, I think about that. And it's something that I go into, I've gone through my phases and especially with this, uh, uh, with this whole lockdown and everything, I was hoping to have already rewritten that, had uh, already kind of closed that chapter and moved on with my next victory and stuff like that. And it's lasted longer, so it's made me think about it more. Because they always say you're always as good as your last fight. Nobody remembers you passed the fight before. Like, oh, he won two fights ago. How was your result in the last fight? And that's the scary thing about MMA. It's not like a basketball game or a hockey game where you play a day later, two days later, and you can run. You don't fight three to six months sometimes. Six months usually. So you fight twice a year. And um, so that can mess with you for a long time. And you got to learn these things as you go, as you mature. Also, another thing is... I've realized that my life has a lot more going on than just MMA now. And that's another thing. I'm married. I have another life. Um, 
me and my wife were involved with a lot of things. Um, there is more than just fighting. I'm, when I was in my 20s, that was it. Like, that was it. Like, all my dice are in there. So when I suffered my very first loss, that shit crippled me for a lot longer than this one did. Because um, that was the first time I had to learn how to deal with haters. It was the first time I had to deal with, uh, like, you know, the social media, like, fake accounts and people just coming, just waiting on you to fall apart. First time, like, first time. So it creates a thicker skin. The second time, you're just, like, you're expecting it. Like, for this fight, I was expecting it, and none of it came. And I was just like, why? Like, why? What? It was more so support from from everybody. We'll get them next time. You're out there representing us on World Stage. Thank you for representing us. Like, why are they thanking me? I lost. And just then walking up into the crowd. Um, so I went up into the lobby because my family was up there, and I was just upset. Like, you know, I've lost. I'm, I just want to get the hell out of the arena. But then fans just coming and want to still get pictures and stuff. I'm like, holy crap, man. Like, it was just, and I took the time to do it with everybody. I'm just like, I'll stay here an extra hour. In fact, these guys are giving me love after that shit. Like, I'm like, why, why would I not? And just, like, learning to deal with it. You got to learn with it because this goes in anything in life. Like, things are always going to be bigger than you, and you can't be kind of like, uh, you can't think that everything's going to go right just because you're doing all the right things. Life is unfair. Life does have a lot of things that you can do all the right things, and you just kind of have to ride with it. And um, um, yeah, I also have to tell myself that it wasn't because I was a lesser fighter than him. It was just his night. I've had 15 of my nights. I'm bound to have a couple of not my nights, right? So it, it, that's just how it is. Like, like, like my wife was saying, you know, like, why this? Why that? Um, you put in all the work. You put in so much honest work. Um, I asked God to, like, give you victory. I'm like, why, though? Why, why would God give me the victory over him? What he, what, why does he not deserve it? Why, like, why is he a lesser man in this situation? He's not. You have to realize that the cage is an equalizer. Being in the cage is an equalizer. And um, that's truly what it is. And that's just, I was stepping up, taking a high risk, trying to break into the top five. And on that night, it didn't work out. But I lost to the best in the world. And that, that's a place that most people didn't think I'd make it to the organization with the best in the world. No, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear those things because, you know, not a lot of people share that, right? Yeah, you can share... It's so easy to share success, but it's really hard for people to talk about, you know, your shortcomings in life. But I feel like it's important because the more you do that, the more people learn that it's not the end of the world, exactly. you know, and it's you're still this tomorrow's another fucking day where you get to breathe air and live. You exactly. know, we win every single day. We get to do that. Yeah, so when I got back to the hotel, I was just like, why would I not post this up? Like, why would I not? I, I literally go back to the hotel, took a shower, and I wrote that post. And I was just like, why would I not talk about this? Like, why am I always, always going to highlight my successes? Like, why are we going to ignore that this night ever happened? This night happened. And he was the better man. And just kind of just kind of facing her for what it is, man, and just, uh, just knowing what's up. Yeah, before my laptop does, I want to say, <laughs> Magic, let's not forget about you disappearing into White Rock. Oh, come on. Yeah, all right. You know, it's time to end this podcast right about that. <laughs> Magic was always out there. Yo, I bet. Yo, I was taking care of the community, bro. Until the sun comes up. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, yo. It's honestly, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, buddy. Uh, you know, it's always love. You'll be family forever. 
Hopefully, after all this shit is done, we'll get to uh, spend some time together. I'm not going to say I'm going to do a workout with you because I, I made that mistake once. Oh, yeah, staying at Humble's. And the, honestly, I've never been so sore, <laughs> so sore the next day in my life. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was my first time coming to Toronto. Yeah, <laughs> man. No, we, that was my very first time ever. Bro, that was that. I made that mistake, and I will never do it again, bro. Being being a, a MMA fighter is something else. I can't train I like you guys. For the first time, that was my first time. Yeah, I remember. I remember it was very exciting times. Like uh, you know, it was it was right in the midst of you know a lot of shit bubbling at the times. But uh, you know, it's from then till now. You know, the the love is there, and you're you're always welcome on the show. Whenever for uh, for another conversation and hopefully in person next time. Yeah. Next time I'm there, man. Let's do it. Hundo P, Hundo P. Noise, you got anything to add? Yeah, I got nothing to add. I'm cutting out. Just wrap it up <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll edit this. All right. Okay, well, Gary, like always, it's a pleasure. Till next time, this has been another episode of the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. Okay.